Okay, thank you everyone for listening and joining us for the second ever USS Briefs podcast, where we're going to be talking after discussing um, what happened at UCU Congress 2018 in the first podcast. We're now going to be talking about basically what happens next, which is going to be based on a lot of the motions um, that were passed um, at Congress that uh, bind uh, UCU to do certain things in the future to do with um, democracy, reforms, and lots of other things like that. So on this podcast, um, very kindly joining us, we've got Rachel Cohen, uh, who was a delegate uh, at Congress and is an NEC or outgoing NEC member. Uh, that's National Executive Committee. Uh, and is from City University London. We've got Joao Florencio, who uh, is uh, a member of the Exeter branch and was a delegate at Congress as well. We've got Jess Meacham, a member and delegate to Congress of the Sheffield branch. Uh, we've got Vicky Blake, um, who you'll all know from her very helpful live tweeting of Congress, uh, who is a, a member and was a delegate from the Leeds branch. And also chipping in, we're going to have uh, Jaya John John, who was a uh, delegate from Oxford um, at Congress, and Deepa Driver, who's another member of USS Briefs. Okay, so the first question I'd like to ask um, is the big kind of hanging issue um, about the status of the UCU General Secretary, um, Sally Hunt. And I guess the main question is, first of all, um, obviously we know, we heard in the previous podcast that um, people, that staff, UCU staff, um, who are members of the Unite Union, who are full-time paid staff, uh, walked out of Congress um, at the end of Congress because of uh, Congress's plan to debate two uh, motions, motions 10 and 11, that were criticising uh, the conduct of the General Secretary and in one case calling for her resignation. Um, and one objection people have raised to these motions is that instead of criticising the General Secretary via Congress, People who objected to her conduct, um, in this case the criticisms were about the USS um, industrial dispute, people who objected to her conduct should um, convey those objections via the means of a kind of internal UCU disciplinary procedure. And I wondered if I could ask Rachel Cohen, first of all, um, what if people did want to do that, I gather that actually some people possibly have tried to do that already to um, complain about the general secretary through that mechanism. How does that work? And, uh, and what are the possible consequences? Um, thanks. I think that, I think that it's not entirely clear uh -huh. how the process works. And I think that's one of the problems. Right. What we do know is that, the general secretary would usually be the person who deals with complaints, and we were told by Congress that okay. in her absence it would be the president okay. who yep. would handle the complaint. There might be 
be an investigation, but at the end of the day, the president's decision on it would be final and there would be no way for people to appeal. So I think I there see. is a complaint process. There might be some concerns about how open and transparent that process would be. Um, but I think the bigger concern is that, is that it's not equivalent. Yeah. And that bringing a motion to Congress allows the whole of the union, it allows delegates from branches that were not bringing that complaint yeah. to hear about it, to discuss it, mm -hmm. and to consider what the role was of, of our most senior elected yeah. officer. Yeah. And I think I that think a private complaint procedure does something very different. different. And it was very clear, and I'm sure we can hear about it from the people who have brought the brought the motion um that what was being looked for was something more public and a more democratic and that involved different branches and not just an individual making a decision about whether or not the general secretary acted appropriately according to the rules preach so this is deepa i would like to ask two questions if i may to yourself and others who may want to chip in, uh, Nick, which is to unpack what you've said. What I understood from what you said is that the general secretary can only be disciplined potentially through the internal disciplinary procedure by the president. Is there any concern from a governance point of view of conflicts of interest through having only through two people within the disciplinary procedure as opposed to a disciplinary procedure for staff which is different from that, that for, for an elected official um i'm not sure to some extent i mean i think to some extent you're asking the wrong question I don't think the members were seeking but rather to hold a cap to account an elected representative for the ways in which they were or were not representing their views. And to me, it seems like they're very, very different things. Um, and right. to subsume the representative role of the general secretary within her staff role kind of limits and constrains the way in which we think about representation within a union. Right, yeah. But other people probably have more to say about this. Well, that's very helpful. Um, it also seems clear that when the president takes over this disciplinary process, you know, let's remember the president is an elected officer um, who belongs as far as the electoral side is concerned, to the same faction as the general secretary, right? So, I mean, it seems like there could be a conflict of interest um, issue there with the president deciding whether the general secretary has uh, um, committed any kind of misconduct. Um, so let's assume that disciplinary complaints um, against the general secretary won't necessarily get that far let's say nothing happens on that side of things um we've had a late motion passed on friday of congress 
that provides for a kind of extra day of Congress, if I understand correctly, to be to to be scheduled now, so that the business that um, we didn't get through uh, by the end of by well by the walkout on Friday, so that that gets completed. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, what's going to happen there? I mean, do we just start again? Do we just pick up where we left off with a debate on the motions criticizing the general secretary? Can anyone who's a, 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 the more bureaucratically minded among us <laughs> answer my question as a naive, relatively new member? I think the answer is yes. Um, Obviously, if there is a recall Congress, um, the conference business committee that made the decisions about right, how yeah. to schedule yeah. this Congress would have to schedule all of the motions. Okay. But if we were starting with all of the business that was lost, yeah, there wouldn't be any very strong reason to reorder it or okay. to remove anything. So and it's the gonna... motion that calls for emergency yeah. Congress requires that it would only hear business that was lost and would hear all yeah. business that was lost. Okay. So we can assume that the next Congress is going to start with Motion 10, no com uh, call for resignation of the General Secretary. I, I would hope, I would very much like to, like that to happen, yes. Okay, right. Um, and if, if the business committee ordered it differently, that would be unusual and unexpected. Um, so when the Congress Business Committee presents its report to yeah. Congress, yeah. it has to be accepted or not accepted by the Congress floor. And that's what you saw I happening see, yeah. Um, yeah. with various challenges. There were challenges to motions. So, for example, right. one of the motions that originally was going to cause a problem for the staff who in Unite at this Congress was actually ordered back onto the agenda. But it is one that triggered the original walkout. Um, it was originally ruled off the agenda and Congress voted it back on. Yeah. So um, there is always the chance for the Congress law to yeah. agree or disagree with, okay. with what the Congress Business Committee have presented yeah. to them. And you you reckon Congress are likely, whatever the CBC does, Congress are likely to want to hear Motion 10 first? It would seem on the number of times that Congress voted to hear Motion 10 and 11 that that yeah. would be quite likely. Yeah. Um, and when do we think this extra day of Congress is going to be scheduled? So I've been thinking about this quite a lot because um, originally the recall motion actually had a, a clause um, about being preferably within one month and yeah. it was pointed out that the rules do require three weeks notice and there were some practical issues around how you organise a venue. But we do have an NEC meeting later this month on the 22nd mm -hmm. of June. Mm -hmm. So it's um, my, my thoughts that we need to discuss when it can and should be at this next NEC meeting because that seems the most obvious place to talk about how to take that motion forward. Right, yeah. Um, but what do you think, do you think there's going to be anything going on in between in terms of uh, negotiations between Unite and UCU? Um, is a solution going to be found, in an interim solution of some sort? You know, is it possible that... You know, anything happens in the interim, or do we just have to wait now for this extra day of Congress to happen? And you know, it's a kind of total um, radio silence in between that. 
I am certain that conversations are already happening um, because they will have to happen in order to move forward in any way. If you think about right. what it must be like yeah. for staff working in um, Carlo Street headquarters, yeah. knowing that this happened, whether they were at Congress or not, knowing this has happened. Yeah. And I think it would be an absolute abdication of responsibility were the national officers, so the elected officers, and and I guess actually also the general secretary, were they to ignore it and pretend it hadn't happened? Like, I don't think that yeah. would happen because yeah. they have to talk about it. I think there may well be, I can't speak for you now, I don't know how their um, branch works, but sure. I would have thought there would be likely to be more meetings of the unite branch and i would have thought they would want to pursue more joint negotiating committees yeah. between yeah. unite and ucu as quickly as possible because th this is unprecedented this entire situation yeah yeah can i just yeah. ask one final question about the general secretary um and that's what uh, and maybe joao can speak to this in particular because um it was his branch uh that submitted the motion calling for her resignation. Um, what do you think, what does a call for resignation mean? Because people have been debating this. And what, you know, is it the sort of thing where the general secretary could say, if, if the motion were passed um, at the resumed Congress, could the general secretary say, okay, Congress has called for my resignation, but I'm gonna stay in office, thank you very much, and just carry on as normal? Um, is that what what we think would happen? Uh, how? Or I mean, yeah. When 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 we passed the motion, uh, there was a similar conversation right. at um, our general meeting. Yeah. Um, and there was an understanding that the even if the motion were to pass, um, which we very much doubted anyway, but were the motion to to pass that there, it would not immediately result uh, or necessarily result in, in in either a disciplinary process or in the in the resignation of the general secretary right. uh, yeah so so to to us uh, it was at least that our intention was for it to be a symbolic motion um, show, um, showing a will uh, from our branch and and if it were to pass from Congress, that uh, Congress had lost uh, obviously confidence in, in the secretary. Right. Um, the the conversations that that we have had do at Congress uh, associated with that um, in relation to that motion, they or the argument uh, certainly for for the walkout from the 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 ECU officials was that that could constitute a constructive dismissal yeah. so that um, even if there would not be uh, a procedure for congress to to force a resignation that the 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 position of, of the general secretary would be politically untenable uh, and and therefore mm. would be as constructive dismissal right. um so I, I, to be honest, I'm, I, I'm not sure what uh, would necessarily um, happen if the motion were were, were to pass. Mm -hmm. but, but to us and, and and our view would be that it is a political motion. The consequence that that would have, you know, it's <laughs> would be for for I guess um, NEC and and the leadership of the union to then 
decide what what to do with it because yeah. we ourselves did not know and still don't know uh, what the, the consequences would be. Right. But it's interesting to know that it wasn't intended when Exeter passed the motion as a kind of, um, you know, binding thing. No, we uh, were aware. We, we looked at, at the various, um, you know, um, rules yeah. and, and we were aware that such a situation was not contemplated anywhere. Okay. Uh, at least a, a formal procedure for, for, for this to happen. Uh, but, but nonetheless, politically, we thought uh, it would be an important thing to discuss yeah. and an important thing to, to vote on. Yeah. Um, moving on from the General Secretary to, to one of the more kind of um, positive outcomes uh, from this Congress as a whole and some of the business that did actually get done and get passed despite all of the walkouts um, and, and the kind of uh, suspensions. And that's the, a lot of motions got passed that had something to do with changing the way democracy functions or the, the kind of uh, uh, the way decisions get made um, in the union. And I'd like you all to chip in um, at some point on this, but I'm going to start with Jess because I know that Jess's branch, the Sheffield branch, passed um, motion B19, which calls for a democracy review um, into the union. Is that right, Jess? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, yes, that, that is what B19 called for. Um, yeah. And I think it's important that we don't just focus on B19, but also yeah. Yeah. the way the um, the way that the agenda was ordered meant that B19 did, uh, or rather the vote to um, put B19 back on the agenda yeah. was the one that took the initial walkout. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, B B19 in its original form, um, called for a democracy review and yeah. made specific reference to uh, the number of um, elected full-time officials of the union. Um, but, but basically, the, the the point of the democracy review and the reason that Sheffield uh -huh. passed it as a branch, yeah. um, we did discuss uh, calling for no confidence and passing a motion of no confidence in the general secretary. Mm -hmm. And we, we heard from several of our members who wanted to do that um, mm -hmm you know, similarly to, to Exeter members. Um, and we, we decided that a democracy review would be a, uh, a perhaps more constructive way of enabling greater member participation in the conversation. Um, mm. You know, we really, yeah. really wanted to be clear that we wanted um, members from branches, regions, devolved nations, advisory committees to feed into that process and to make it as open and transparent and accessible as it possibly could be. Um, UCU has had a democracy review relatively recently. I think it was in 2012 or 2013. Okay. Um, but it was quite a narrow process. There were only 10 delegates involved in that. Um, and we considered that the political context has changed and yeah. UCU has sure. changed yeah. uh, significantly since 2013 and that it was it was probably time for another one. Mm -hmm. uh, and... I'm I'm really glad that that it did eventually pass, even in an amended form, because I I do think it will be just one of the productive things that ends up coming out of the business that was transacted at Congress. Yeah. Um. So so yeah, I think that is a genuinely positive thing, along with many of the other motions that we mm -hmm. did manage to hear. Yeah. Um, the Leeds motion that called for plain English explainers, um, okay. I think is a fantastic oh, well, motion because we, we're in we favour of that. Yeah. 
Sorry, say again? We're in favour of that here very strongly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, and I think that that motion speaks to to a bigger problem of, of accessibility, which is that, that a lot of the information um, is not easy to find. It's yeah. difficult to explain um, how the union works. Um, yeah. And, you know, hopefully between all of those motions that did get passed, um, we can do a lot of work on engaging new members and empowering members who have been around for a while right. uh, to feed into those processes. Um, so Could I just make yeah. a plug here, Nick, yeah. for Rachel's brief, yes. which explains for new and lay members um, yeah. how UCU works, because I've certainly found it quite enlightening. Yeah, brief number 23. complex the structure is. Yeah, um, strongly recommended. Uh, in fact, it, it was written or drafted quite a while ago, but um, has proven some of the stuff it said has proven to be so kind of eerily prophetic of what's actually happened at Congress that I really strongly recommend anyone listening to this to to read the brief if you haven't already. Um, but I just wanted to save some of those other democracy review motions for a minute and just ask about the um, the Sheffield one. You t so you after negotiations with. Um, Unite UCU staff members, you took out the bit referring to um, unelected, appointed full-time officials, right? So does that now mean that the democracy review is not going to consider the role of those um, full-time staff at all? Um, I don't see that that necessarily follows, to be honest. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think once you've mandated the fact that a democracy review is going to happen, mm -hmm. um, you haven't actually specified what that democracy review, uh, the limits and parameters of it, yeah. which was one of the reasons that we were happy to take that section out. I see. Um, although that said, I mean, a lot will depend on the processes of um, electing the delegates who will form yeah. the democracy mission, I so, guess. And that was why yeah. we uh, put a late emergency motion together yes. that was heard on the final day which this tried is to specify L9? <laughs> Do you mean L, L, L9? Yes, L9. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask we, about that. Yeah, so, th so that one was trying to um, to give Congress more uh, more power over what the Democracy Commission would look like. Right. Um, and third part of it specified the number of delegates um, and we said that there should be 10 from HE, 10 from FE, and representations from pre and post 92 institutions. Yeah. Uh, we didn't fully consider uh, what we were what we were asking for there, and we were rightly um, uh, rightly told from the floor that we should have specified casualised workers. We should have talked about equality strands, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the functions of trying to write emergency motions in the middle of sure, the most yeah. chaotic Congress ever. Um, so, yeah. so that bit that bit fell. Um, which means, I assume, and Rachel and Vicky will probably have a better take on this than me, that NEC will um, be tasked with deciding uh, how that process works, which is perhaps not as ideal as um, as passing it specifically in Congress. But, you know, either, either way, um, the, the Commission will go ahead and I hope that it will have fruitful outcomes. Could I just say a word on, on that and what happens yeah. to motions that have been passed by Congress? So a motion gets passed by Congress, it becomes policy of the union. From that point, it goes to the NEC and its subcommittees. So there are quite a number of subcommittees that deal with specific business. And when you're looking at the headings within the Congress agenda, you see that some are down as business of the strategy and finance committee and so on 
and, and so forth, that the motions are then kind of arranged into where it makes the most sense within the NEC to do something about it next. But we, uh, as we go into a new union year, we have some people outgoing, like Rachel, who's um, leaving the NEC at this point, and other people who were elected this year who were about to start their two-year term on the NEC, and you've got people like me that are in the middle of a term. We are holding internal elections of the NEC to those subcommittees at the moment, so we don't know who's on which committee. But what we do have is this upcoming next meeting of the NEC as a whole on the 22nd of June. And so it'd be my intention as an NEC member to try and formulate some kind of a motion that brings out a discussion of that if possible. Although I think, as I mentioned before, I think that the overall issue of what happened at Congress is likely to be on the agenda of the NEC meeting. I can't see how yeah. Yep. But I am, I've been spending the last day and a half trying to think of a helpful oh, way. Hello, Vicky. We seem... Hi. Hi. Yeah. I don't know what happened. V Vicky, are you still there? I am, yes. Can you yeah. hear me? I just heard the last thing I heard you say was helpful way. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so that's the last thing I said. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you were talking about the NEC and you were saying, um, you know, that this, uh, this 22nd June next meeting could be important. I have a really nerdy bureaucratic question about that which is if there's going to be an extra day of Congress at some point, mm -hmm. um, does that mean Congress hasn't ended and so we still have the same NEC we had at Congress? Or has Congress technically ended and we so, so we have the new NEC in now? So, for example, Rachel is no longer an NEC member as of end of Friday, business on Friday. Do we, do we have an answer on that yet? Um, I, I don't know what the official answer to this would be, but my working through of it would be that the timing of the, the, the timing of your periods that you do your NEC terms, if you like, is timed with where Congress is, is planned for. This is a recall conference, which in the text talks about discussing any outstanding business of the Congress, not to discuss new business. So normally if we finish and we don't, like get to the end of Congress, but we don't finish all the business. Normally, all the motions that weren't proposed get remitted to the NEC. So I understand that motion, L10, as replacing remitting everything that wasn't heard yet to NEC with the recall conference. Mm -hmm. I think that people step down and step up as they would have expected, because that was in the terms of reference around the election. That would be my understanding of that. But that we haven't closed the book on all of the business that remains to be proposed at Congress yet. There mm. is another nerdy question that you could ask about what does that mean for who the Congress delegates are? Because branches yeah. elect their Congress delegates, and it's usually the Congress delegates who then go to any special sector conferences that take place during the year. And it may be that different branches have their union years and their committee years and God. their delegate years timed slightly <laughs> differently so i think you'll be seeing an awful lot of um extraordinary general meetings at branches coming up as well interesting can i add as well that um i think that vicky's right about what's probably going to happen um but i think that nick your question kind of got to something else which is that this congress wasn't closed correctly right um, 
given that the chair had suspended business yeah. and then never returned, it wasn't there some ambiguity about whether that suspension yeah. was ever ended and whether it is whether the the member of staff who came back into Congress to tell us that Congress was over had the power to do that. Um, right. I think that's a kind of separate set of questions. But if the answer is that it wasn't ever closed correctly, then I think we're in a bit more of a mess. Yeah, even more of a mess. Yes, I think so. Interesting. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the other motions then? What what other motions were passed to change the way democracy and kind of member input works in the union? I know um, Jaya John might have something to say about this, but I, I imagine others will too. I could give a quick overview. Um, we Great. Uh, besides the democracy review, there was the very interesting um HE 13 motion for a national dispute committee, which changes yeah. how uh, basically branches will now elect delegates uh, to help manage uh, national disputes. And that's a fundamental change. There is increased uh, transparency and regular reporting from the joint expert panel mandated by uh, HE 47 by Glasgow. Okay. Um, there are the different motions that improve governance, uh, such as uh, the, um, leads as motion eight, um, motion nine. Uh, what? Uh, sorry, Vicky, can you chip in here? What was Leeds motion eight? Um, um, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I actually wrote this motion, so I can talk about it. Um, cool. It it was passed by our branch um, in light of mounting frustration during the time in the USS dispute where we felt like we were constantly having extraordinary general meetings and doing our best to communicate what was happening in that very fast-moving dispute with um, several extra higher education committee meetings being called to discuss each phase of, of offers and potential yeah. ways forward. Um, and one of the things that I noticed, I'm the president at Leeds, and it was my first year as president, which, you know, interesting time to have your first year as president, but... <laughs> I was spending an incredible amount of time at every meeting explaining what everything meant to people, very intelligent members in our branches yeah. who were capable of understanding things, who looked at the, we called it the bureaucraties of the union, just in bemusement. We all uh, work in universities in our, yeah. our branches. We all work yeah, at the yeah. University of Leeds. We're used to bureaucracy. We're used to our... <laughs> and yet we really struggled and it it brought home to me um this was my seventh congress and i've been on the nec for five years it brought home to me how you can get used to how business is done and how people speak about things yeah. and that it's actually incredibly inaccessible mm -hmm. and that if we want to promote even more engagement we saw this incredible upturn in engagement of members and increasing numbers of members as well during the uss dispute in order to really grab hold of that and keep improving that and keep working with it and make sure that we're really improving how democratic we're being mm. you need people to be able to access without being switched off what's happening yeah. so things like having stuff in plain english being really clear um, making sure that when branches are asked to send delegates to um, meetings that couldn't in rule be special 
sector conferences because you need 30 days for those. We had these two branch delegates meetings that, although they're indicative, trying to be really clear that when you ask branches to represent what their views were, of that you need to be asking the same questions. I know Rachel um, works a lot on how bias works in surveys and stuff like that. It's like different mm. branches were in positions of interpreting what they were being asked to find out from their members in slightly different ways. And the mm -hmm. questions were being asked in different ways. So the, what was coming back wasn't directly comparable between every branch. Yeah. Yeah. So just trying to formulate something to give more guidance to branches so that we, we had some kind of ideological integrity in those situations. Mm -hmm. Really, it, it was born out of a great love for the union and wanting to do things democratically and a huge amount of frustration from our members. Uh, Rachel, do you do you have anything to add on, on these motions and what Vicky just said? Um, well, like Vicky, um, City submitted motion 9 and motion L1, which both uh -huh. related to um, union transparency and accountability and the ways in which decisions got made and came out of the frustrations that emerged during a USS strike. Um, and so a couple of things that these focused on were making it possible for branches and members to be able to contact HEC, NEC members much more easily. Um, one of the things we realised is that there yeah. isn't very good ways of communicating. Yeah. Um, about providing agendas and um, information about upcoming meetings mm -hmm. for those national HEC, NEC and FEC meetings, which mm -hmm. at the moment doesn't happen. And mm -hmm. ways in which those national meetings are able to consider motions that are passed by branches need to be introduced. And L9, sorry, motion nine passed all of those things. Um, motion L1, focused a lot more on increasing the capacity of elected representatives to amend any kind of recommendations that come from officials before they vote on it. And this seems a very specific and technical thing, but caused a lot of problems and a lot of frustration in some of the HEC meetings that were happening during the USS dispute. Right. Can, could, could you just give maybe an example of that or just a bit more detail on what you mean when you say, so recommendations come from um, so officials and... For example, yeah. So, for example, um, at the HTC meeting where there was decisions made to set up the JET, yeah. we received a very long paper mm -hmm. from the official involved which talked about the um, terms of reference for the jet, the yeah. process by which it would be set up, and had a whole series of recommendations. And the Higher Education Committee was asked to vote on all of the recommendations in one go, mm -hmm. was told that we weren't allowed to amend any of the recommendations or any of the material to which they referred, which included, for example, proposals that we might have wanted to put to elect rather than appoint yeah. JET members who were on the UCU side. Mm -hmm. And I think that just meant that you ended up voting for or against something in a very simplistic way when most people were broadly supportive of what was being provided to them, 
but wanted to be able to clarify things, for example, around transparency, around elected representatives, around the timetable, and we weren't able to do this. Um, yeah. And so I think having that clarified by L1 is going to be really helpful because it strengthens the role of elected representatives within our union to be able to make decisions and to clarify and amend decisions before they're made. Okay, that's that's interesting. That's very helpful. Thanks, um, Rachel. So, um, sorry, can I just highlight one other thing? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the one thing I didn't mention that um, Motion Nine does, which is also related to what Jaya John was talking about, uh -huh. Motion Seven, and perhaps he's come back on this, is that it introduces a requirement that the contextual information that is sent out with a ballot. Mm -hmm. is agreed by the Higher Education Committee and not simply written by the General Secretary yeah. or unelected officials. Right. Um, it may still end up being stuff that you don't like because, you know, we, it's going to be voted on, sure. but at least it's made transpa it's transparent where the decisions to say something come from. Yes. And a lot of members were very concerned this time that the ways in which the ballots were being um, represented yeah. was unaccountable there wasn't accountability there right um, um I'd like yeah to add something to this if that's okay just yeah. um because i think as you sort of noted these motions are quite technical and so i left congress feeling quite shell-shocked about the fact that we'd ended in the way that we had mm -hmm. and quite disappointed in how a lot of things had gone but my positive takeaway from Congress was not only that we'd done all the business of the sector conferences in the middle day, mm -hmm. so in both further and higher education, but in although we didn't get through very many Congress motions, the ones we've been discussing are so important. I, I'm really excited about them. And again, I realised it wasn't clear why I was so excited about them to people who haven't been so like <laughs> deeply embroiled in the bureaucracy. And it's all the stuff Rachel's talking about is just so important because. These are the structural issues that have made it harder for people to engage, have made it harder for people to follow how decisions have been made, and have actually made it harder for everyone, I think, whether they are members sort of waiting back in branches or back at home to hear what's happening at meetings of the NEC or meetings of the Higher Education Committee, um, or even actually I would imagine, I can't speak for them, but for staff who... When it's not clear how things are supposed to proceed in unusual circumstances, people choose different courses of action and then have to defend them where if there was a proper procedure in place with clear avenues of how you, as Rachel's just given an example, produce information that goes alongside a ballot, then there is less chance of there being a question over the mechanism for how that information has been put across. So mm -hmm. it would be clearer if you disagreed, for example, with the information that had gone out with the ballot, it would be clearer who you disagreed with. Because the HEC in the meeting prior to that ballot being put out um, over what we did next in USS, yeah. we did not discuss what may or may not go in as a ballot insert. And some of us did ask to discuss that, but timing was an issue and right. it wasn't discussed. And so... You're in that situation where if people are looking at who represents them and what they're doing, or if they're thinking ahead and they're thinking maybe when it comes to the autumn and it's time to consider nominations for who wants to stand to the NEC in this ways, 
we need people to know that you can affect change and you can represent members in ways that make sense and are easy to communicate. That's now yeah. much easier um, and so much clearer thanks to these motions that we have passed. Yeah, that's so great. I, that's a really yeah. positive message. And also we've got these um, special sector conferences coming up. So we actually yes. have the special sector conference on USS on the 21st of June. Yeah. That people who want to consider being delegates for those, there should be conversations happening in branches about that now. Yeah. So um, that leads me to my next question, which is about bringing us back to the USS dispute and what's going to happen over the next few months. So we've now... Um, We've already got this higher education sector conference in June, which is USS focused. And then Congress also passed a motion for another one to happen in September. Is that right? Yeah, that's going to be the one that will consider the report of the JET. Okay. And I think that's really critical because having that conference arranged at the time that the JET reports means that branches will be able to have a democratic role in deciding where next on the USS dispute. Could I just uh, chip in uh, with, with something both I think related to, to what Rachel just, just said, but also to, to what um, both Rachel and, and, and Fiku were mentioning earlier, um, which, which um, go, I think goes to the core of, of what happened in Exeter that led to, to, to that motion 10. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, also, it, it was, which is um, at least in, in, in our branch, uh, uh, a, a sense of kind of radically renewed uh, membership, uh, much more engaged, and um, people who want to know what is going on, and, and you know, for some reason, maybe because of the, the, the USS uh, uh, dispute being so such a, a, a big event in, in, on social media that then Congress became one too, um, that, that I, um, I had events on campus both yesterday and today, and the amount of, of, of colleagues and students that approached me wanting to know more and, and wanting to know what next, and, and we, we called them a meeting for, to discuss Congress next, next week, um, this was unprecedented. Never have mm -hmm. we had members approach us uh, and and wanting to know what exactly what exactly happened, what were we planning to do, what was what were other branches planning to do. So there's this real sense of uh, investment and and willingness to to be involved uh, involved in in, in what happens uh, nationally and to to get all the, the information that we need in order to to form a, a, a position at, at branch level and i think i actually agree with vicky that the, it is really um uh in the end uh what happens can can be transformative of the union in in, in a really positive way um it was not just some kind of omnishambles or, yeah 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 it, it was really a, a reflection of a, a, a highly engaged uh, rank and file union that we should actually be capitalizing on. So I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful. Great. Um, and talking about new members wanting to participate, specifically with these sector conferences that are coming up, two of them on USS June, June and September, um, can someone break down the, the absolute basics of that? 
um, who attends these conferences? Do you have to be elected? Can you be a regular member? Is it like branches send delegations like with Congress? Um, how does it work? And what power do they have to kind of change the course of the dispute? Okay, so they're actually policy making meetings. I think that's really important to okay. note. So if you ever see a call for a special sector conference, yeah. it will have the same status and ability of making policy as the one that we had a sector conference in the day sandwiched between the two days of Congress. Right, yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's the same status as that. So you can attend if you are an, uh, well, so in a higher education one, you would be a higher education yeah. NEC member, which means yeah. that you're on the higher education committee and delegations from branches. And number of delegates per branch is um, is to do with how many members you've got in each branch. So I think it's yeah. every 400 members you get a delegate. Okay. Like that. So yeah. those delegates are elected at branches and sent to those sector conferences. Right, right. And there may also be delegates who get elected via their regions, um, but inspire some of the other committees within the union. I see. Okay. And um, so, Rachel, you were saying, I think, um, that the September one is going to be really important because this joint expert panel, the JEP, will have uh, issued one report by then. Um, and that report will kind of... Well, there'll be some kind of need to respond to that. Could you? Could someone talk a little bit more about that? What we expect to happen, or may or may not happen in September? Well, I think it's going to be important because it's going to set the terms for the dispute to run over the course of the year. Yeah. Obviously, if the Jet Panel reports and finds that there is absolutely no deficit and we're going to maintain our pensions and even get better ones mm -hmm. um, that's great and that that conference can then decide that we can all go back to work and it'll be fine but if the jet reports with anything um that yeah if there is indication that the jet is either likely to report that there is a deficit or which is probably as likely that the JEP itself, the members of it, are not agreeing, mm -hmm. then there's going to have to be some decisions made about how to progress the action. Yeah. And what, and some planning around what kind of industrial action and when it happens. Um, and so that might involve thinking about times of balloting, what mm -hmm. the conditions would be for us to start balloting, when action might begin. So that's going to be really important and people attending that are going to have the kind of decision-making authority over how to progress the USS dispute. Right, interesting. And so what would have happened without that, without a sector conference in September, how would those decisions have been made instead? In the first instance, those decisions would be made either by the HUC or the union nationally may have decided to call a delegates meeting, but that meeting may or may not have had any rights to vote. And as we've seen in the past, uh -huh. non-binding delegates meeting yeah. can respond, but won't necessarily yeah. have any control over union policy. So it would have been a similar situation like we were in at the end of March, right, where there's a branch reps meeting, but it's only advisory and it can't actually force anyone to do anything potentially yes and and i think that what's actually quite interesting now is that we've got two 
dates uh, coming up. So we know the date of the one in June. There's going to be a special sector conference on USS then and one in September. So it, it reads to me like members in branches that have put forward these motions that include having a special sector conference that almost like a safeguard against being in that situation again by having more of these meetings because you have to give 30 days notice for them to be yeah. these binding, you know, con conferences in rule. So it, it's it's quite an interesting response from members, I think, actually, to the really difficult and quite unsatisfactory situation that Rachel was describing where you're kind of trying to pull together advisory meetings where the HEC sit and listen to what the branch delegates say and as we've discussed around the motion that now means that at least indicative votes will have to be taken at those meetings in future to make everything clearer but we should be hopefully moving away from those sort of I just think of them as scramble situations yeah. people doing their best to get information together in a short time scale but we now know how quickly moving the USS dispute in particular can be so at least we have some points in the calendar where we know we'll be able to touch base with members right. and it will be policy forming so it's actually more democratic ways of making decisions as we go through if that makes sense right and I gather, just moving on past the USS issues, um, I gather Congress passed some motions to do with that that could have a bearing on the pay dispute that's kind of, we're kind of gearing up for with our employers in higher education. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that was in the sector conference. So, but the sector conference is where we did all of the business. Yeah, and it wasn't interested. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do we? What can we expect there? I mean, what? Do you think there's likely to be strike action around the pay offer uh, in the autumn? I think, or? I think one of the things that was really important is um, that we that the conference decided that they were going to focus the pay campaign around not just pay but also equality, casualisation, and workload. Okay, and, right. And I think that's why it's really important as a as an dispute yeah. because it allows us as a union to represent not just members who are relatively high paid but also yeah. to campaign on the issues that affect some of our lowest paid members and most um insecure yeah and so i think there is there is also a higher education sector conference scheduled for pay and that will also be in the autumn it may very well be um, that they they're scheduled on the same day as the pensions one, just okay. to allow people to attend more. I see, right? Yeah. Um, to cost less money. Yeah. But that will allow people to um, contribute to discussions on how to dis um, how to progress that dispute. Okay, that's very helpful. Um, and this kind of leads me to my closing question for the podcast, which um, I guess in a way has been answered already. Um, I just wanted to ask a kind of more general question to all of you, which is um, people have seen all the headline grabbing controversy over the general secretary and the motions criticizing her and the walkouts and the shutdown of Congress and members just looking on um, and seeing the headlines might feel like the whole thing has been derailed and it's been a disaster maybe for the reputation of the union publicly. Um, and I was going to ask, what would you say to encourage those discouraged members and make them feel better um, and more optimistic about the future, uh, if anything? But you've, you've already suggested a lot of things to do with 
what's going to happen in the next few months. But do you have any more kind of, um, do you have a kind of bottom line on that? Um, I do. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, I mean, I, I think, again, just from from the the, the conversations, uh, informal conversations, um, I've had with, with, with members um, on campus yesterday. Um, I felt that they were, our members at least, are a lot more re-energized because they felt that delegations at Congress were there to, to represent the views of, of, of the members um, yeah. in, in the branches that they were, that they were, that they were, that sent them. Yeah. Uh, and I think ultimately, uh, regardless of, you know, despite what happened in terms of leadership, uh, there is, uh, to me, uh, I would like to think that there is a sense in which members uh, trust their branches and know that their branches are, are uh, working locally and, and, and their branch representatives are working nationally to, to, to take their voices and, and to represent their, their views. And, and to me, that is what ultimately, um, it's, that to me, that is the essence of trade unionism, when you know that, that um, whatever happens at the local level is carried upwards um, to national to, and brought to national level to, to, mm -hmm. to engage in discussion. And our, there was not a single member in, uh, at my branch that came to, to talk to me. There was not thankful and, and, and ultimately had a, a positive view of, um, of our branch. And if this happens at all branches yeah. across the country, the union can only become stronger. That's really great to hear. Um, and it sounds like, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I, I completely agree with what with what Dow's just said. Um, to be honest, I think that uh, having this kind of conversation in public does nothing other than demonstrate the strength of feeling among members right. in branches. Yeah. Um, and we've we've been talking about this um, basically since the beginning of the USS dispute. Mm -hmm. You know how it's increased membership, how it's increased participation, um, how we're looking at enormous numbers of recently mobilised casualised members, for example. You know all those kinds of things. Um, and I think we need to, as branches, now do. Um, you know, we, we need to hold more meetings, have more conversations and talk very clearly about all the positive stuff that has been passed. Um, mm -hmm. And that is definitely, you know, including the higher education sector conference on Thursday, which was, you know, astonishingly productive, really. There was a lot of really great stuff that was passed. Um, and I don't think that that is going to get lost in yeah. the controversy. Yeah. I think it will all feed in um, to, yeah, a hopefully a more energized democratic yeah. uh, thing going forward. Yeah, I, I think like turning points never actually look clear until you're looking at them in retrospect. Yeah. Um. So it looks quite messy at the moment. Lots of issues have come to the surface in the wake of the it, the the renewal of the union and the huge growth in membership is incredible. So obviously a lot of issues that have been bubbling away for a while have come to the surface. But what we've just done, despite the suspensions and despite the interruptions, is make some really important policies together that will make it easier for us all to participate democratically together. And when you're in a situation where you've got casualised staff on picket lines to defend pensions that many of them aren't even in yet you mm. have to be excited about the kind of union that that means that we are and that we can continue to grow more into being so 
any kind of, I think it was the delegate from Kings who'd said that, you know, for unity, you need to actually confront dissent. I think that's really important that we do and we reflect on that and we grow from it. And we take that into our branches and regions as well as what we're doing nationally. So mm. we're not only focusing on the things that hit the headlines in terms of pensions and pay, but also the real like issues that we have every single day and that we call on our union reps and our union staff to help us with we can do that. We can do that together. This is actually really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have to be accountable. We do have to be democratic. But th- th- my message to people who are worried at the moment is the answer is to be more involved. You might not be able to dedicate all the time it would take to be a rep, although you might want to think about it. But keep informed, be engaged, ask questions. Great. Um, I'd like to echo all the things that the others have said really and yeah. emphasize what Vicky ended on which was it's absolutely critical that people stay involved and if you're angry about, about what's happened that you become part of the solution and the union will be a better union the more people are watching the more people are engaged and the more that we work to transform our structures so that they represent members as well as they can do yeah um, and it sounds from what you're it sounds from what you're saying about the the sector conference on Thursday that that is already happening and that lessons from the USS dispute are already being being learned and that things are going to go a bit differently next time um, and that's really positive and encouraging as well. I think things can't go the same anymore. I think that having a larger number of people in the union doesn't just change the numbers, it changes the makeup of the union. Mm. And we've now a very different place than we were a year ago. And that's exciting and it's a bit chaotic, but it's likely to lead to a much better future, both within higher education, but across the sector. And I think that there is also here uh, um, uh, something that I will, you know, that the general secretary could could learn from, which is that, that at the end, the essence of, of, of democracy is not consensus. The essence of, of, of democracy is, is antagonism. And it is the ability, <laughs> it is the ability to foster and respect antagonism that, that unites us as, as a union. Um, and if we are able to, to respectfully um, hold different positions, um, that can only bring us together um, because there was there were arguments around you know we were splitting um, we were not splitting we were coming together in disagreements and you know this mm. may be uh, some people might hold different views but I think this this is at the essence of what trade unionism and any democratic uh, political movement um, should be about coming together in disagreement that sounds like a good note to end on. Uh, or start on. So thank you very much to everyone for taking part. Um, That was really fantastic and really helpful. Um, And uh, well, all all, all I'll finish by saying is that please take some time off now, recover from what sounds like a pretty, pretty grueling Congress. Thank you.